Okay, welcome back. Um, this is session three of our study, the book of Revelation. And today we're going to particularly zoom in on chapter four and chapter five. Um, so just some words of introduction before we'll read the, the passages from Scripture together. Um, it's interesting that, again, John begins um, uh, his account at, at the beginning of chapter 4 mentioning um, that, a, that he was once again in the spirit. And I just wanted to say a couple of things about what the significance of this phrase in the spirit means. Um, he, if you recall, back in um, chapter 1, uh, he introduced us to himself and his situation by talking about the fact that he was in the spirit. And I think what John's doing here is he's wanting to remind us that he's giving us a, vis a vision of Jesus that's not after the flesh, that is a focus on the physical memories or reality of Jesus on the earth, but it's it's really a vision that's about being taken into the unseen spiritual realm. And he, he, he's really encouraging readers to look at Jesus in a different way, a different way to the Gospels. Um, this is about the glorified Jesus who's alive, who's ascended into heaven and who's now appearing to John in his unveiled glory after the Spirit. Um, and what goes along with that is all of this symbolic language that we've seen so far. Nothing John's shown us about Jesus um, so far has it all been literal or physical. It's all been symbolic. It's all been language drawn from the Old Testament um, through which we can interpret things about Jesus' rule and what he's up to. And we saw um, last session those pictures of Jesus ruling through attending to the churches, which were... Um, symbolically represented as lampstands. Um, in this um, section of two chapters, four and five, he expands on this vision of Jesus' rule. So um, we move um, beyond Jesus' close attention to the churches to um, an epic picture of the throne room of God and um, we get introduced to Jesus as, as a great conquering king, but also a very unusual, unique picture of him as the Lord of history and of all creation, culminating in um, all of creation, worshipping him at the end of, end of chapter 5. These two chapters are really, really significant to the whole book. Um, before John's going to unfold, sorry, unfold to us sort of the whole meaning of the story of history through the rest of the chapters and God's great redemptive purpose in, in restoring and renewing his creation in a new heaven and a new earth, he's really beginning with this unique perspective of heaven. So um, we get taken into the throne room of God in these two chapters and we see um, this throne room set up like um, the throne room of an ancient king where uh, rule is being expressed and fealty and worship uh, are being expressed and um, this uh, symbols all over the place of enormous power and authority. And it's perhaps helpful before we start contemplating the text just to think about why John's starting here. Um, 
it, it, it's made me think about um, just the last week. Uh, I've spent, um, you know, I don't know how many hours reading articles online about COVID-19 and watching television programs. And I went for a walk around um, Kennington Res with a, a good friend of mine just a couple of days ago and we were talking about um, COVID-19 and just how difficult it is to make sense of what's going on in the world at the moment. Um, there's a health crisis, but it has all sorts of political implications, um, potential economic implications. Um, society, in a sense, has been shaken, turned, turned upside down a lot. And working out who to listen to and what's true and um, what you know, what what, pers what perspectives are, are valuable it, um, is very, is quite difficult. There's politicians, media organisations, bloggers on their web page, all with competing perspectives, often driven by ideologies, and knowing who to believe or what to trust, where the truth is, um, it's not an easy, easy thing to work out. Um, and it reminds me, maybe partly as a history teacher, it reminds me that the hardest, the hardest part of history to make sense of is always the present. It's where you live and the time that you live in because you don't have the benefit of, you know, hindsight or distance to make sense of, sense of things. And, it, and um, we're living in a period where I can't, I can't think of a time um, in my life that's in some ways felt so unsettling, fearful, chaotic, potentially out of control. And, and I'm having quite interesting conversations with colleagues and neighbours and um, diff different people in different contexts about questions to do with what's true and what might happen. Um, it really has shaken people a bit. Um, what's been going on in the world the last couple of months. And in a sense, that's part of what this, these revelations um, that John's sharing with us, it's what, it's what they speak to. In, in a sense, it, um, the crisis was different, but the, the same feelings were being felt in the first century church under sustained persecution. Sometimes it was local Sometimes it was regional or even to do with edicts from the Roman emperors. Um, but these people were suffering and the world seemed chaotic, out of control, and they were asking questions about what's true, what's trustworthy, what, where, um, where's, where's God in all this? And so this vision that begins with Chapter 4 and 5 in particular of this incredibly um, awesome throne room becomes a really, really rich picture reminding readers that God's sovereign, that God's ruling in total control, his power is absolute. Um, it's quite stunning, in fact, the, the, picture, the picture of what's going on in heaven because it's, heaven is at perfect peace. Um, creation is at rest. There's not a sense at all of anything being disturbed by events in the slightest. And in a sense, this is the, the theological heart of the whole book. 
um, that idea that you are worthy, um, you're in control, you're ruling. The point is um, we can we can move forward with settled, settled hearts, having this vision of heaven and God ruling um, in our minds. Um, I might stop there and we'll just have a listen to the two passages being read and then we'll come back and talk about chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, the throne in heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation chapter 5, the scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. One of the um, one of the things Hannah and I have done as we've worked through Revelation over the last couple of months is where you get a, a really vivid picture like at the beginning of chapter 4, we've, we've taken some time just to actually have a go at in our own crappy way, well, my own crappy way, drawing what we're seeing, actually trying to visually represent on the page what the different elements are. And I think I'd encourage you to do it. It's very very helpful just to um, absorb the different elements in the picture and try and make sense of um, the relationship and connection between the elements in the pictures as well. So what we're going to do, it's a shame in a way um, having to do this via podcast because you can't see, well, it's maybe a relief that you can't see any of my rubbish drawings, but um, being able to look at some visual things might might also be helpful. So maybe you could do it yourself. Anyway, we're going to start by looking at um, the picture that's presented to us of the throne room at the beginning of Chapter 4 and just go through um, the elements and talk a little bit about um, what we're seeing here. So um, starting at verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. What are we making of that, Hannah, do you think? There's a figure on the throne. Yeah. Um, um, We'll see in Daniel 7, when we start to have a look at the Old Testament passage that really informs lots of this vision, um, the figure on the throne is the Ancient of Days. Um, John never mentions or directly describes God, but it's implied that this is God's throne um, in heaven and that God himself is seated on this throne. Um, Then then there's followed some description of the throne in terms of its appearance and then a rainbow resembling emerald encircled the throne. Um, rainbows are very significant in the Old Testament. Where do you remember? Where do you remember seeing rainbows? God's covenant with Noah. Right. So this is this is a symbol that's um, from the very beginnings of Genesis been linked to um, 
God, the covenant-keeping God, and, and this, is, this is the symbol of his covenant with all of creation, his promise to, um, to bind himself to his creation and protect it and um, make pro- his promise that he would, he would never flood the earth again. So, again, um, it begins with a, a symbolic element that clearly is reminding us that um, God is, has bound himself to his creation in covenant. Surrounding the thrones were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. So um, as I picture this, I have the throne in the centre and on one side I've got a set of 12 thrones um, in, a, in a sort of semicircle and on the other side another set of 12 thrones in a semicircle. Um, the number 24 is very significant as well. And, again, this is a picture that reoccurs right through Revelation. Yeah. Um it's God bringing together His covenant people. So, what what do you make? What do you make of the twenty four thrones and these twenty four elders? Who might they represent? Well, twenty four is two twelves. Yeah. And so, tw- Israel had twelve tribes. Yep. And there were also twelve apostles. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's how I that's how I would interprets what's going on here. So you've got these figureheads of the old covenant represented by the leaders of the 12 tribes mm-hmm. and also the, 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 um, the leaders of the new covenant represented by the authority of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, if we're building this picture of um, God keeping covenant with his people. You've got his covenant with all of creation, with the rainbow, now enhanced by the covenants he's made with Israel, old covenant, but the new covenant established in Jesus um, that that now has these 12 apostles and the church um, as part of his kingdom. They were dressed in white, um, um, indicating purity, holiness, righteousness, and had crowns of gold on their heads. So, again, um, emphasising their role as uh, rulers. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And again, this is, this is, this is another little bit of covenantal imagery. In the Old Testament, um, where God made covenant with his people on Mount Sinai, one of the things that's associated with Mount Sinai is that wherever, whenever Moses went up uh, the mountain, to commune with God and um, discuss the covenant and get the, get the um, Ten Commandments, etc. A cloud would descend and there would be peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, and it was an indication of God's presence um, that God was there doing business with Moses. Um, and so again, it's another it's another another symbol that we connect to this God of God of the covenant. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Um, again, the number seven is significant. And I think, again, Paul's, sorry, John's just using it here to indicate um, perfection or completeness. But this is definitely a picture of the Holy Spirit yeah. um, represented by the seven spirits of God. But really, we're talking about one spirit before the throne. 
um, represented by fire, and that's again a common a common old Old Testament um, way of representing the Spirit of God blazing like seven lamps. Um, the Spirit has a really significant role in terms of mediating God's covenants as well. The Spirit's role is to really be a mediator between God and his creation. And so the significance of this blazing fire before the throne also has covenantal implications. Um, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So what you need to picture here is... Um, an enormous sea, but perfectly still, not a ripple on the water, um, like a like glass, an absolute calm, perfect uh, reflection. That's a very, very significant element um, in the picture we're being presented with that I'll come back to when we get to Daniel's prophecy because Daniel's prophecy actually will make sense of what's going on with the sea of glass. So moving on, you then you then get the the um, the description of four very unusual living creatures with eyes in front and back. In other words, all seeing. Um, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The thought the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, again, these um, living creatures would have been very familiar to readers of the Old Testament. Um, they appear in many um, different places in the Old Testament, often associated with temple worship. Um, images of these types of creatures are carved on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, but um, they're recognisably the angelic beings that come to be known as cherubim in the Old Testament, and their function is to attend to God's throne and serve in God's presence. That's why they're so connected with, with um, the temple, etc. But it's it's very interesting how, how they're described here. The description very much parallels... Um, Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Um, we're not going to go and read that, but you may want to go and have a look at that. And and you'll see that the four creatures um, appear uh, almost identically in Ezekiel's prophecy. It's interesting to think about the the role and function of these cherubim one like a man, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like an eagle. Could I ask you, Hannah, what, what do you think is going on with, the, what, with these cherubim? What do they represent? Um, well, they seem to be each the sort of pinnacle or the strongest of their category kind of thing like an eagle is the yeah the greatest, the of, greatest the birds. of the birds or whatever yeah I think that's correct so so again man is like the pinnacle of uh created things and then you have um the strongest or almost powerful the king of the wild beasts a lion and then a king of the tame beasts or the domesticated animals the ox 
the most powerful. Um, and then, the like Hannah said, the eagle um, representing the same thing in terms of birds. So in terms of how, how the Jewish mind works and the Jewish order of creation, these four, um, these four cherubim are almost like representatives of all the creatures of the earth. And they lead the worship of all the creatures of the earth um, in response to, to God himself um, as representatives but also as, as sort of these lead figures. And um, worship is very central to this picture. So what's going on? What's going on now is that you have the four living creatures worshipping, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So um, these elders, how would you describe their worship, Hannah? What are they doing to worship with their with their um, yeah? If you read those verses around verse ten, well, they're falling down before the throne. What else are they doing? Keep reading a little bit further. They lay their crowns down. Yeah. So, what might that represent? It's like they giving their authority back to God who gave it to them. Yeah, exactly exactly right. So part of worship is about um, speaking out words that respond to God for who he truly is, like the four living creatures. But mm. part of worship is actually an act of fealty or a yielding to his rule, actually recognising your own creatureliness or the fact that you're ruled. Even if you're a ruler, you're ruled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these uh, representative elders actually express um, their authority by recognizing they're under the authority of of the great king of king of all kings. Um, the whole picture sort of reminds me of that really famous quote by um, the fourth century theologian Augustine, where he says. Um, uh, Father God, you have made us for yourself, O oh Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. That that whole sense that all of life is about um, returning to the creator and giving him the glory that belongs to him and recognising who he is, his worth, his worthiness. And as you do that, you actually find rest in yourself. Yeah. Um, there's something about your creatureliness being fulfilled in responding to your creator properly and in the right way. What I'd like to do now is just have a look at um, the passage from Daniel chapter 7 that um, John's clearly referencing in in his vision in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. Um, In terms of in terms of John's contemplation of Scripture and his understanding of Scripture, the prophecies in Daniel 7 were very, very prominent, popular and well-known pro- prophecies in the Jewish world of the first century. Um, so these sort of pictures 
would have been very fami- very familiar to John um, as he's experiencing this um, vision in the spirit of being taken up in the spirit and um, being given a perspective of what's going on in heaven um, in the throne room of God. And there's, there's clear links um, back, to, back to Daniel 7. And if we have a look at it, it, it'll unlock for us some of the meaning of what we're seeing in Revelation. Um, so who was Daniel? Just really quickly, he, um, Daniel was a Jewish leader in exile in Babylon. He'd been taken, taken to Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. Um, and he'd he risen to a very prominent place in the court of Nebuchadnezzar as a seer and an interpreter of dreams in particular. And so um, at the beginning of um, the book of Daniel, there's a series of visions that are, that are about um, Daniel seeing in, in the spirit or in his dreams um, the, the tumult of sort of rebellious humanity and, um, and out of it coming... Uh, being thrown up these beasts that represent the great empires of the world that are progressively judged by the Ancient of Days until ultimately it's resolved in uh, the coming of a Messiah-type figure, um, one like the Son of Man. Um, And uh, this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 fits into that, um, that collection of prophecies that Daniel's contemplating about the rise and fall of of the great empires of the ancient world. So we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll pick out some verses, and you may want to go back and read the whole chapter yourself, but we'll pick out some verses that um, are particularly helpful and relevant for understanding what's going on in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So I'm going to get Hannah to read, and I'll just tell her which verses to read. So maybe start with reading verses 2 and 3. Okay. Daniel said... In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Okay, so the first thing he sees, and this is really interesting, is this enormous, uh, you know, yeah, picture this churning sea. In the ancient world, the sea was the most frightening aspect of nature, Mm. Um, the most scariest natural force in all the world. And so you've got this raging storm and and a, a churning sea, and out of this sea is being thrown up these beasts. Mm. And what we come to see, we won't read all his prophecy or the interpretation in the second half of the chapter, but what we come to see is this sea represents um, rebellious humanity, humanity in its rebellion against God. And out of the heart of that rebellious, churning, chaotic humanity, these beasts that are being thrown up are great empires which will will dominate human beings in the world for a period of time before they're eventually um, judged and crumble. But then a new new, um, beast will emerge. And there's a series in the vision of... Um, four beasts that represent four great empires of the ancient world. Um, that's not our focus for today. But these beasts really, they consume. Um, they have enormous destructive appetites, um, these empires, and, and they're uh, recognisable for their sort of arrogance against God as well. Let's pick up the vision 
from verse 9. Uh, maybe 15. So that section. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. One more verse. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Okay. I have, yeah, maybe then just skip forward to what happens then is a an angelic figure um, comes to Daniel and actually reassures him because he has this he, he's anxious and troubled. troubled about what he's seen and gives him an interpretation of what's going on with the vision this disturb this very disturbing vision that he's just experienced mm. and then just read the very the very end. Verse 28. Uh, 20, start at 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship him, will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Yeah, very interesting. Um, again, we, we could spend, uh, obviously, um, an hour just un unlocking or exploring what, what Daniel's vision's about, but I'm most interested just in the elements that we see taken up by John mm. in Revelation 4 and 5. So if we just... Um, Think through the sections that we've read about. I'll leave. I'll leave the um, the sea to one side because there's clearly a sea in John's vision, but it's of a very different kind, and that's hugely significant. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you if you're thinking about the other other elements elements of the throne room in Daniel, you have a throne in heaven. Um, you have a figure identified on the throne, the Ancient of Days, that which who clearly represents Yahweh, the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. You have fire before the throne, um, similar to John's vision. And then you have a great multitude of attendants around the throne, which again parallels, in a sense, the throne room in Revelation. Um, toward the end of verse 10, you have some very significant elements. The court was seated and books were opened. So you have the opening of a book, and that will become very significant once we move into Chapter 5 of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Then 
Um, out of the crowd, a messianic figure approaches and is brought before the throne. And in Daniel, you have that very famous verse, one like uh, uh, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into uh, his presence. Oh, I should read the verse before. Uh, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So, again, this this messianic figure receiving um, authority to reign and to rule a kingdom forever um, is part of Daniel's vision that's picked up in John. A couple of other things that are quite interesting as well. In, in Daniel's vision, there's a moment there's a moment during his vision where he's greatly troubled and distressed. And that happens to John too, interestingly enough. Mm. There's a point in the vision where he's weeping and weeping and weeping because he's so distressed by what he's, what he's seeing and understanding mm-hmm. that's going on. And then he's reassured by an angelic figure that says, don't worry, we've got one worthy, etc., to open the seals. Mm. Um, and both visions culminate with the saints, the holy ones, reigning with this uh, messianic figure and receiving authority themselves um, to be part of a kingdom and, and an everlasting rule. Um, so again, there's a heap of there's a heap of parallels there, and it's clearly um, uh, the structure of chapter four and five has clearly been built on the structure of Daniel's vision in, in Daniel chapter seven. Let's go back and just talk about some of the most important elements one at a time. So we'll start with looking at the sea. What's the difference, Hannah, between the sea in Daniel's vision and the sea in the vision in Revelation? Well, in Daniel, the sea is sort of churning out of control and in John's vision, the seas, it looks like glass, clear as crystal. What, what, do we, what could you make of that? <laughs> um, so if we've already said the sea is representing churning humanity in rebellion mm-hmm. against God, like a raging storm, what are the implications for a perfectly calm See like glass in Revelation. Well, it seems to imply humanity at peace. Yeah, perfect peace. That this the, the raging of humanity has been totally stilled. Um, there's there's not one there's not one little breath on the surface that can disturb um, humanity. So to me, it's a picture of um, humanity completely conquered. Hmm completely at peace, completely at rest. Mm. Um, Nothing can disturb it, Um, completely dealt with. That picture of the sea will be interesting, um, will recur in uh, Revelation down the track as well. So what we have in heaven is no longer, from the perspective of heaven, there is no longer a raging humanity. That's dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, and over, completely over. Um, from the perspective of the rule 
of this one like the son of man, there's no raging humanity to deal with anymore. That's done. It's at peace. And what we're going to have to work out, and I think Chapter 5 will provide the clues, how come we've got to this position where uh, um, tumultuous, chaotic humanity is now like a glassy sea? Mm. Okay, let's pick up the next element, which is from the beginning of Chapter 5. Um, chapter 5 I'll have to just flick back to Revelation. But chapter 5 begins with the idea of the opening of a book. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look at it, look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So, again, what we have here is a picture of a heavenly throne room and a book being presented or a scroll being presented that's all sealed up that can't be read. And no one can, not, not just anyone can come and break the seals. It requires one worthy or one who has the authority. And there doesn't seem to be anyone in all of heaven or all of earth with the, with the authority. And, and obviously it makes uh, John incredibly distressed because clearly he wants to, he, he recognises the importance of knowing what's in that scroll. Mm. So what might be in that scroll? Again, the, the prophecies in Daniel give us a massive clue Daniel talks about scrolls like this in some of his later prophecies and, and they relate to the unfolding of history. So this is a scroll that's going to explain the meaning of things, the meaning of the human story, mm. the meaning of all of creation. Um, what, what's the story mean? You know, all the big questions that human beings have, why are we here? Mm. What's the purpose? Where's this start and finish? Mm. Um, these sorts of questions about the whole meaning of the world and of creation and of history are, um, are, are in this scroll, but no one has the, has the ability or the authority to open it. Mm. Um, the, these questions go to the very heart of life. And then you have this figure turn up. Um, mm. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So who do you, who, who's this sound like? Jesus. Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. <laughs> um, what's interesting about the titles that, that he's given, given here, Hank, can you see anything there? What are the clues that this is Jesus? Um, well, the root of David, a descendant of King David. Yep, which, which is clearly a messianic title. So that's that's a that's a title that's given to the Messiah of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so is the 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 picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So that that's a that's a picture connected to 
the Messiah who's gonna, going to come as a conquering king mm. and restore the kingdom the kingdom of Israel. They're, they're kingly titles. They're titles for um, the Messiah as a mighty conqueror. And right. the thing being, yeah, that's right. And the thing being emphasised here is that this, this um, figure, personage, has triumphed, that is, has won a great victory. Mm. And it's, it's that triumph. The, the implication of um, verse 5, that triumph is the reason he's qualified to open the scroll. Mm. Um, so it's a very triumphant picture of Jesus and, and as the Messiah. And this triumph is the key to opening the book. What's absolutely amazing then in chapter 5 is how the picture shifts in the very next verse. Then. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So what's happened to this figure of Jesus? He's now depicted as a lamb. Yes. Yeah. A slain lamb. Yeah, not just a lamb, but a slain lamb standing in the centre of the throne. So that, that is right at the heart of God's rule, mm. right in the centre of things. Um, these triumphant line of Judah imagery have been replaced by a lamb that was slain. What do you make of the change in the picture? We've moved from a lion to a lamb. How's this a massive clue to the significance of what John's trying to explain to us here? Maybe the way that he's triumphed is by being slain yeah yeah exactly right i think that's exactly right that we're actually getting an insight into the nature of jesus triumph mm. that he triumphed as a lamb that was slain this is the triumph mm. um it's not a picture that uh, runs contrary to the triumphant pictures it's actually an explanation of how and how he's accomplished this this um great triumph and the other thing it's telling us is right at the centre of history is an event that's going to unlock all the other events of history mm. because it's not just describing Jesus' um, person, the lamb, but his work as well. Mm. He was slain. Mm. That's something that happened to him. And so um, it's giving us a clue that if you want to understand all of history, then there's a moment or an event that's going to be like the fulcrum or the watershed or the lens through yeah. which all other events are going to make sense. And that's why he's qualified to open the book and no one else is or the scroll and no one else is because it's through his work um, that all of history is going to make sense. Mm. It's, it's uh, in, in a little picture you're getting an incredibly profound theological point yeah. about the significance of this person and the work that he's accomplished in um, dying on a cross because that's what's in focus here, the saving act of God's love that, that changes all of history, that defines all of history, um, Jesus accomplishes as a slain lamb, as a sacrifice offered on behalf of others. Um, 
So it's the key to his authority. What's what's interesting next is that um, the picture goes on to describe, I've just lost my place, Uh, the picture goes on to describe he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Um, again, this is quite easy to interpret because we see it all over the place in the Old Testament. Seven horns means power. Seven eyes means wisdom. All seeing um, connects to wisdom. Horns always connect to power. Number seven means perfect or complete. So what you have here is this lamb that was slain is in fact the the the, the figure in all of history that that um, encompasses perfect power and perfect wisdom um, and the, and then the then the other bit where it says which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth so how are how is this power and wisdom expressed well in heaven it's a lamb that was slain with horns and eyes etc using the symbolic picture but expressed on the earth, it's by the spirit. It's by the spirit going out that we'll see this wisdom and power um, expressed. So you know, all, you know, all of those pictures that we see in the New Testament writers about, you know, it's a great conquest, but it comes through laying down your life or sacrifice. Um, it's power, but in expressed in weakness. Um, it's earth shatteringly important, but it's so easily underestimated or passed over. You can so easily miss it. You know, the, the lion is a lamb. Israel's Messiah died like a disgraced criminal. Mm. Um, there's a paradox to what's going on here that requires the spirit's revelation to actually recognise mm. the horns and the eyes, the power and the wisdom. Mm. And it reminds me really, really strongly of um, that passage in 1 Corinthians um, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about power and wisdom, and I'll just read it to you quickly. It'll, it, he, Paul, um, much more eloquently than I've been able to, really sums up what we've just been talking about. So he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Interestingly, in what we're talking about, they're all the people trying to work out what is the meaning of history, what's in the book, etc., etc. Um, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, The world, through its wisdom, didn't know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews Jews demanded miraculous signs. Greeks looked for wisdom. So Jews demanded, that's really about power, demanded miraculous signs. And Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Mm. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 
So I suppose the takeaway from this little section for me is God wants us to understand the meaning of things, understanding what he's doing and what he's up to in terms of the great redemptive purposes in history. That's part of what he wants us to know. Mm. But don't try and work it out for yourself because you won't be able to. It Mm. requires revelation. Yeah, don't try and work it out with the wisdom of the world. Exactly, exactly. You know, CNN are trying to work it out at the moment or Donald Trump or whoever. Um, You know, the great philosophers down through history have tried to work these sorts of questions out. And the only way you recognise the true reality, the Mm. true meaning of history, is if if God would be gracious enough to show you his lamb that was slain, ruling on a throne, Mm. and then by his spirit send it out to all the earth for us to apprehend and understand so, so that we could reject the wisdom of the world and the power of the world and embrace the wisdom and the power of God. Okay, the last little section of um, um, chapter 5 revolves completely around all of these creatures in the throne room recognising that Jesus is worthy. Um, and they sing this amazing new song. So verse 9, and they sang a new song. And the fact that it's new is significant. God has done a work in creation, and they've already sung a work to God's creative work as a creator at the end of chapter 4. This is a new creative work. Um, This is a work of redemption, redeeming the old and making things new. reminds me of that passage in um, 2 Corinthians 5, you know, I, um, any man who's in Christ is a new creature. Mm. Um, it sings of the new heaven and the new earth at the end of John's gospel, at the end of Revelation as well. Um, it speaks of Colossians. You know, this passage is all over the place that uh, are really about giving God worship and glory for the new work, the new redemptive work of recreating um, mm. making things new, and that's what's being sung about here. Um, and they're singing not not to not to the ancient of days. They're now singing to one who is like the Son of Man, this Lion of Judah, who's the Lamb that was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Um, again, what, what are you seeing there about what are they recognising is the foundation of his worthiness to take this scroll? What's he done? He was slain. Purchased by his blood, yeah, slain for all men from every tribe and language and people and nation he's redeemed so it's gone out to all of all human beings and he's not just he's not just redeemed them or um set them free he's remade them for a purpose what are you seeing in the purpose the purpose for this this new created humanity verse 10 to be a kingdom and priest 
Yeah, and we see that again and again in Revelation, don't we? He, that this mm. comes up a lot. Um, he, we're saved from sin. The the blood deals with our sin, mm. and and sin is dealt with, and there's no separation or break with God anymore. But of much more significance is we're saved too. This incredible inheritance to be kingdom and priests. Mm. What does a kingdom imply about what we'll be doing? We have authority to rule. Yeah, we'll be rulers. And to be priests? To serve. Yeah, to rule and to serve are going to be um, the two qualities of this remade humanity. One more point I want to make about this new song is look closely at verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. Note that the song isn't you will make them, it's you have made them. Mm. What's the significance? It's it's now. Not, it, it's not for heaven, it's for now. Yeah, it's not looking forward to a future time where we'll be kingdom and priests. It's you have made them. In other words, in Greek, we're talking about something called an aorist tense. That is, it's something that's happened in the past that was a point event. Mm. There was there's a point in the past where you've accomplished something that's a made that has made all your people a kingdom and priests mm. for God. What's the point? This is our inheritance now. Mm. We reign and serve on the earth. Yeah, if only we could see through the lens that he's given us, the lens of Christ's lane. That's right. And that's why that's why these visions are so important. We need to know we have been made mm. a kingdom and priests and mm. that, that our song on the earth is accompanying the song in heaven, we're singing two parts to the same song. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Um, how do we reign and serve on the earth? Well, we reign and serve by giving him his worth in everything like they are in heaven. Are we living, proclaiming in our actions and thoughts and lives every day, you are worthy? Mm. Are we living other-centred lives with our focus on him? And the reality of are we setting our minds on things above mm. and the truth that the king reigns, redemption is accomplished, victory is won. Mm. Um, th that idea of, um, you, you know, it's by our worship that we express our reign and service on the earth. And that doesn't mean going around singing songs all the time. It mm. means Worshipping by living yielded to the king, living the truth of the words of the song, mm -hmm. living in relationship, being obedient, attentive, submitted, hungry and thirsty, like it says in Romans 12, offering ourselves every day mm -hmm. as living sacrifices. So what can we take out of these two great chapters that take us to the heart of John's message in, in the book of Revelation? I think the most important thing to take out of today is Christians everywhere have settled hearts. Mm. Actually, it's a message for the whole world. Mm. Have settled hearts. The redemption's been accomplished. Mm. It's a finished work. The king reigns. 
Um, in these days of coronavirus and whatever else is shaking civilization, we have a message that says history isn't a frightening, chaotic, meaningless whirlpool. There's a purpose. God has, God has done things that have re reclaimed you, remade you, and giving, given you a whole lease of life mm. if you would just turn to him and respond to him. There's a plan that's coming together. But the fate of everything's decided. The sea is calm. Mm. Heaven is at rest. We're, we're looking for this to be manifest on the earth in God's good time. But don't miss the fact the reality is established. Mm. That's what's true. Mm. Events on earth cannot disturb this reality in the slightest. God is bringing things together in, in an incredible way. It reminds me of, um, you know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the things he says in the Lord's Prayer is pray that things would happen on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. After doing the session today, I'm really thinking about that idea that we need to be really we we've got a glimpse of what it's like in heaven. Mm. What we want is let's we want to live consistent with that and we want to see that manifest mm. on the earth. I'll finish with um, that great passage from Romans 8, which, which sort of sums up all of creation groaning because they're wanting to see things on the earth reflect the true reality of what is happening in heaven. Mm -hmm. So um, this is from Romans 8, chapter 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I've used up all my time and can't take time to explain those verses, but to say one thing, there is a future hope that we're looking forward to because we live in the tension of the fact that we are in unredeemed bodies in a world that has so many marks of its fallenness mm. still all around us mm. and, me and messing things up all the time. We need to hold that alongside the true reality of the heavenly perspective that John brings us in chapter 4 and 5. Mm. And that's what, the, that's, that's what it means to pray. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Um, have settled hearts about today, about the heavenly perspective that um, God has graciously given us. Um, go away and speak to him about it. Um, pray the Lord's Prayer with, with new meaning and maybe, maybe new enthusiasm. Um, and I just pray that what we've gone through today um, would be a blessing. Thanks.